at a young age. Um, thank you to our guests very much for being with us. It's been very informative to me, and I hope to our listeners also. Um, our program airs the second and fourth Fridays of the month. The producers for Education Today are Kevin Cartwright and Jaron Epstein. The board op today is Erica Bridgman, and I'm your host, Kitty Kelly Epstein. We look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Oakland East Bay Men's Chorus and the Swing Fever Orchestra of San Francisco present Cabaret Zoot Suit. This benefit event will occur on Saturday, June 20th at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday, June 21st at 5 p.m. at First Christian Church of Oakland, 111 Fairmont Avenue, Oakland. Ticket prices are $30 and up with senior discounts available. Participants must be 21 years and older. This is a benefit for the Oakland East Bay Gay Men's Chorus and will help produce the chorus's concerts and community projects throughout the year. Visit oebgmc.org for information and directions. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 301. Stay tuned next for a free speech. I'm sorry. Stay tuned next for cover to cover open book. Welcome to Cover to Cover Open Book. I'm your guest host, Kelly L. Ramirez. Today, a conversation with Marxist author Fred Goldstein about his new book, Low-Wage Capitalism, What the New Globalized High-Tech Imperialism Means for the Class Struggle in the U.S. Fred Goldstein was inspired to become a Marxist by the Cuban Revolution. He is a longtime member of the Workers' World Party and a contributing editor to Workers' World Newspaper. We began our conversation by discussing why he chose to write this book. The subtitle gives you the clue what the new globalized high-tech imperialism means for the class struggle in the United States. I wrote this in a period which is still extant, in which the working class and the general population seems to be in retreat from the days of the 60s and the 70s. There's a certain passivity and a fear that had overtaken the people, and resistance was down. And I felt that the process of globalization that was kind of going on behind the scenes was creating a new situation quietly, gradually, that would eventually change things in the United States. And I wanted to give an optimistic perspective, not just based upon what I would like to see, but what I detected was a kind of worldwide wage competition which was being created by the new technology administered by the big corporations globally, which was driving wages and the standard of living down in all the high-wage countries, the imperialist countries, and especially in the United States. 
and that really what would develop from this would be a leveling down of all those sections of the working class, mainly the white working class, that had relatively high or medium wages, and that this was being gradually destroyed. And so the conservative elements within the working class that had a grip on the trade unions and on the movement in general would no longer have a reliable base and that people would begin to rebel in a way that they hadn't done in decades since the depression. Why are they so passive? We have people who vote Reagan and Bush. That's the point of the book. You're taking a snapshot in time and I firmly believe that this snapshot in time is a picture of an end of a long, long period of political reaction in the United States. I think that conditions are what change people, make them susceptible to more radical, progressive, and revolutionary ideas. And if you look today, you're looking at a long nightmare era of anti-communism, of class collaboration by the labor leadership, of co-optation by the Democratic Party. And there was a material basis for this. Workers could get by, not black and Latin workers, not poor Appalachian workers who have always been in a semi-crisis or a total crisis because of the anti-labor attitudes in the South. But generally, the broader white working class industrial workers were able to get along. They were able to survive based upon the capitalist system moving forward. It went up and down, up and down, but by and large, they were able to get by. And on that basis, they would follow a leadership that would just preach the continuation of the status quo. And we're still in that stage to some extent. The big shift will come when the workers break from the Democratic Party, when they become independent-minded, see themselves as a class, fighting against the class that's exploiting them and that's making war and fostering racism and oppression, that will come. That will come because workers will not be able to go on in the old way. That's what's happening in the United States now. People are losing their jobs. People are losing their homes. People are going into bankruptcy for medical care bills. And this is not going to change. The point of the book was to show that everything has undermined the old way. And this book was written before the crisis. Now this crisis has accelerated this process. Secondly, the wage structure of the United States has been dramatically transformed. It hasn't just gone from a manufacturing majority to a service industry. It has gone from high wages to low wages. In the 1960s, the biggest employer in the United States was General Motors. They had 600,000 workers with high-paying union jobs. Today, the biggest employer in the United States is Walmart with 1.2 million workers who live on public assistance to supplement their wages. And that's just not an accident. That represents the transformation of capitalist society in the United States to a low-wage economy. What do the bosses see in going low-wage? What's in it for them? Profitability. It's that simple. The problem that the capitalist class faces constantly is how to 
retain and sustain the profitability of their enterprises. It's a tendency of capitalism for each capitalist grouping to compete with the other. And they compete with each other to reduce labor costs. That's what makes them more profitable. And they also have to capture more and more markets from each other. And in this struggle to do this, they constantly tend to drive down the level of wages. In fact, one of the most important factors, in my opinion, in the last 20 years that has sustained U.S. capitalism has been the driving down of the wages of the working class based upon setting workers in countries that have low wages like India, China, Malaysia, in a direct competition with workers in the United States, job for job. This is what's new in the structure of world capitalism. It used to be that the colonial people were restricted to working in the mines, working on the plantations, working in the ports, building infrastructure, doing everything to get raw materials into the big manufacturing centers in the big imperialist countries. Technology has changed all that. Software and the internet and satellite communications, super tankers, computerized ports, and so on, made it possible for the capitalists to fragment the production process and to have it go on all over the world in different parts and for it all to be integrated in the United States or in Germany or France and then sold all over the world. But what it did was, instead of workers in, say, Malaysia just supplying some raw materials, they have a chip industry, a microchip industry, a very highly developed one. And they compete with workers in the United States who are working in the same industry, but the wage level is determined by the level of wages in Malaysia because the workers here are forced to compete on the basis that their jobs will be exported. The law of capitalist competition drives each one to lower wages and to find ways to lower wages, and they found this great secret of globalizing production as a mechanism to drive wages down and, and sustain profitability. Who is going to buy the goods if the consumer, as worker, been downgraded? Well, actually, what you just stated is the fundamental problem which is insoluble under a capitalist system. A consumer and a worker are the same thing. It's an artificial construct to talk about consumers as one group and workers as another group. The tendency in capitalism under the impetus of the competition that I referred to before between capitalists and the tendency to improve the efficiency, the productivity of labor, which is really to say increase the exploitation of labor, goes on constantly. So what you have is a tendency of production to expand as much as they can and always to outstrip the ability of workers to consume it always ends up in a crisis. And that's why you have the term boom and bust. That's what it means. The workers spend much of their lives over the generations in downturns. And the reason for that is the workers ultimately cannot consume the production that they create under the ownership of capital. But capital as a producer 
just expands indefinitely until the whole thing collapses. Now, with our new environmental consciousness, we are starting to realize that things cannot expand forever in a finite planet. Globalization itself may be in trouble because of limiting environmental factors. Would you have any environmental lessons that can be learned about the capitalist economy? The question of protecting the environment and utilizing finite resources is something that can only be coped with by a socialist society in a significant way because it's something that requires rational planning based on human need and the needs of the planet. This is something that's incompatible with the profit motive. How can factory owners continue to emit carbon dioxide, melt the polar ice caps, how can capitalists go into Brazil and destroy the rainforest and the oxygen supply of the planet? The lungs of the planet, as it's called. Profit. And the warnings come, and the studies come, and the United Nations forms great committees to study the environment and issues its edicts that if the temperature rises two more degrees, it could threaten whole sections of, of society. This is not a factor. When the corporate executives sit down to figure out whether or not they're going to trade and cap, they're all against it. They're lobbying against it now in spite of Al Gore's movie. <laughs> They've seen the movie. They know all about it. But when they sit down and they look at the accounting reports and they look at the expenses that are involved in installing devices that will limit pollution and changing technology, they say no. The bottom line comes first, and that's all we want to hear about. So that the environmental question is a political social question which requires a different kind of society, different social relations and economic relations. A planned society where the means of production and all of the economy are socially owned and that the lever of production and creation is human need, not profit. Until we get there, we're not going to be able to solve the problem of the environment. Not that we shouldn't struggle to do whatever we can do right now. Throughout the book, you keep talking about science and technology and that revolution and its impact on the workers. Are you a Luddite? No, I'm not a Luddite. I'm the opposite of a Luddite. This is a contradiction that must also be resolved with a socialist solution. Because when you make devices that lighten the load of labor, you would think in a rationally planned society, the people who use these implements would benefit from it. That technology, which could create abundance, which could make life easier, which could result in a shorter work week, more leisurely work pace, that technology is used to make everybody work harder, work faster, and work for less money because the less skill there is in a job, the lower the wages are for that job. And that's the reason the capitalists invented the technology in the first place to take the skills of workers from them, put those skills into machines so that everybody is more or less interchangeable with everybody else and the amount of training is reduced or is at zero and so that workers have to compete with each other for jobs on a level that is much more intense because whatever skills you might have had are no longer required. We can only benefit once we take the profit motive out of it and make it possible for people to 
relax and enjoy the use of modern technology, have more leisure time, just develop more as human beings. Needing to work for a living, that seems to be what technology is causing trouble with, and we really should aim at eliminating. Is that really, though, what you're aiming at when you're talking about property rights in a job? I was referring to a job as a property right as a device for workers under capitalism to assert their right to stay in a factory, not to be laid off, to put the onus of the expense of keeping workers on the job back on the company, back on the government. Workers under capitalism should be able to say legally and constitutionally that we have property rights, we have sweat equity in these plants, we are the first ones who have to be considered when a decision to shut them down is taken and we can vote no and we should have the right to stay on the job. And if the capitalist says, well, we can't sell this at a profit and we have to shut down because we're not profitable, we're not competitive, etc., the workers have a right to assert, well, that's not our problem. Let the government subsidize the cost, keep the markets going because you have no right to take our jobs because we have a property right in those jobs. That's one aspect of it. But the longer aspect, the long-term point that you're making, which I agree with completely, is that the technology should be used so a job is something that you do as part of producing for society. You do it in a relaxed way. You do it in a way that affords leisure time. And you also don't get stuck at the same thing day after day that you have the opportunity to try different occupations, to try different endeavors that may please you or be more suitable to you at a time. But let's just step back and say, is this some kind of a fantasy or not? It sounds like a fantasy, but it's not. Capitalism as a social economic system has a specific role in history. For thousands of years before capitalism, the material development of society progressed very, very slowly and gradually. With the development of capitalism, the profit system drove every capitalist to improve technology to the point which abundance becomes possible, meaning that the means of production are so fruitful that it can provide the material basis for life for everybody that no one any longer has to struggle to get part of the social surplus that is created by society. The struggle of people against scarcity, which predominated in human history up until recently, no longer has to be the driving force of human life, of human activity. Capitalism has created the possibility to feed everybody on the planet, to clothe everybody on the planet, to give everybody shelter, to give everybody education, to give everybody medical care, to give everybody what is needed to sustain life. But it, it can only be done once it's socially owned and that you don't have to go and sell your labor power to some employer who's going to profit from it in order for you to survive. Workers own nothing but their ability to work. In order to stay alive, they must sell their labor power to someone 
who owns the instruments and the means of production or services. We have to change that. It's not necessary. It can be done away with as an institution. Once the means of production are socially owned, people contribute their labor to society. They don't go and sell themselves to somebody. They contribute their labor and they get back from society what they need. And that requires material abundance, vast stores of, of material goods that can be available to everybody based on what they need. How does the worker get the means of production? Right now, what's needed is for workers to come together. And when I say workers, I don't just mean the labor movement per se. I think the labor movement has a very, very decisive role to play in fighting against the present crisis and in moving in the direction of pushing the crisis back onto the capitalist class. But right now, the labor movement's leadership is going in the opposite direction of trying to negotiate more and more concessions. But what's needed is for the rank-and-file workers to take back their unions and to reach out and make alliances with the rest of society, especially with black and Latin people who suffer from police brutality, poverty, racism, oppression of all sorts. They have to reach out to the movement for a single-payer health care system. They have to reach out to the environmental movement, to the anti-war movement, and to bring it together in a big struggle against the common enemy, which is the capitalist class, and to raise the consciousness of workers, to begin to see themselves as a class, separate and exploited and opposed to the capitalist class that lives off their labor. The combination of struggle and raising consciousness moves us in a direction of the obvious, that the only way to liquidate this terrible situation in which workers find themselves separated from the things that they create, separated from the means of life, is to do away with private property, is to seize the means of production, to seize state power, frankly. Look who's in Washington. Larry Summers, Tim Geithner, who was there before them? Robert Rubin. I can go all the way back down to the Eisenhower administration. Summers and Geithner, they're not trying to do anything but bolster Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup. That's what their task is. The banks and the capitalists have control of the state. The only ultimate way is for the workers to take control of the state and then seize the industries, take it over for the workers, for the whole population, and begin a new day of planning using this vast global apparatus of production for social use to meet human need and so on. Okay, what precisely do you mean by doing away with private property? I mean, I've got my clothes and my backpack and my books, and I would like to keep them as mine. When I say private property, I'm talking about private property of the means of life. What you are referring to is personal property. Capitalism reduces the worker's personal property to a minimum at the expense of private property and the means of production. Socialism does the opposite. It will increase the personal property of everybody at the expense of private property, which will be destroyed. 
under socialism, distribution will be on a basis of human need. And distribution means increasing the personal property of, of individuals. When society provides free quality health care, free quality housing, free quality education, and allows the individual to get from society what they need according to their own personal situation, the personal wealth that's available to you increases vastly, whereas under capitalism, it's kept at the absolute minimum at all times. You may be just left with a few books and your toothbrush, and maybe if you can afford your house and so on, which you just have to hang on to. Your personal property as a worker is always at risk and always at a minimum. Under socialism, your personal wealth of everybody will increase as the wealth of society is increased and used for the social good of all. One of the things you talk about is the need for a workers' party, workers' political movement. How do you establish that when we are ingrained in the two-party system? Well, there's no other way to do it but to do it. People come together on the basis of a common goal and an ideology and they use history as a guide to create a party that is able to express the interests of the working class and oppress people. A group of professional revolutionaries and organizers who are animated by a common vision of trying to overcome private property and are able to help workers in their struggle to see this goal, but at the same time help them achieve their immediate aims, like the Employee Free Choice Act, which is now in the Congress. A workers' party would help workers at a rank-and-file level to understand that if they rely upon the Democratic Party to get this legislation passed, they're just handing their own fate over to a group of people who really are very much wedded to the capitalist system and to the capitalists themselves. And that the only way for workers to really effectively fight for the Employee Free Choice Act is to mobilize in the streets to take a half a million workers down to Washington and to go in there and plant themselves at the Capitol building and tell them we're not leaving until you pass this bill. You need a political party that understands this kind of method of struggle, of independent thinking on the part of the working class, and that can get into the unions, can get into the communities with these ideas and with the strategies and tactics to accomplish these intermediate goals. And in the course of that, you build up a genuine working class party that can effectively fight for socialism. There's no other way to do it than to do it. We've seen throughout the world recently food riots, social unrest among the young people in Greece, for example. Are the workers headed for civil unrest even in this country? And is violence inevitable and is it necessary in a class struggle? We do not seek violence and never did. But what we have seen and what everyone has seen is the violence of the ruling class and its institutions against the workers. 
And there's only one way to answer the violence of the ruling class, which is the violence of self-defense. There's got to be the right of self-defense of workers in pursuit of their goals. The Black Panther Party, which was founded here in Oakland, they were called the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. They just established a simple proposition. If the police are going to arbitrarily beat our people, shoot our people, harass our people, we have the right to defend ourselves. So we don't advocate violence, but we say that violence becomes a necessity as a matter of self-defense against the violence of the ruling class. One can even think of the words firing and terminating as violent words, an act of violence towards the worker. I like that very much. That is violence. It tampers with the lives of people, their very existence. And to overcome that, organized revolutionary self-defense is going to become absolutely inevitable. You have been listening to Fred Goldstein, author of Low-Wage Capitalism, What the New Globalized High-Tech Imperialism Means for the Class Struggle in the U.S. Low-Wage Capitalism is published by Worldview Forum and is available at leftbooks.com. It can also be read online at lowwagecapitalism.com. Low-Wage Capitalism also has a Facebook page. This has been Cover to Cover Open Book. I'm Kelia Ramaris. Thanks for listening. fundraising plea. It's a political alert from Pacifica Radio Network to you, KPFA listeners and California activists. This year marks the 60th anniversary of the Pacifica Foundation, a beacon for listener-supported, non-commercial free media since 1949. You can help keep KPFA radio alive and get your